2 John, and we're going to start at verse 1. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, creator of the universe, we thank you that we can open your word now and please do uh, show us uh, what you want to uh, communicate with us this evening through your living and active word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder whether you've ever come across Dr. Gary Chapman's best-selling book, The Five Languages of Love. It basically does what it says on the tin. It suggests five ways that we can show people, languages, uh, that we love them. Um, and they're kind of interesting. The first is that we can show people love through acts of service. So if you offer to wash their car or do something for them helpful, you can show them that you love them that way. Second is giving gifts. Give a box of chocolates, that might communicate um, something to someone. Um, the third is through quality time. So if you clear your diary and you say, my time is yours, that can speak really loudly as a language of love to some people. The fourth is through kind words, so just the language that you use to them um, can speak really loudly. Uh, and the fifth and final language of love is giving hugs, according to Dr. Gary Chapman. Um, and based on book sales, at least, People are very interested in what Gary is selling. Our world is, as we know, obsessed by love. We sing about it. We make movies about it. We talk about it. We want it. And yet, at the same time, there seems to be an awful lot of confusion, I would suggest, over what love really looks like. Ed Sheeran tells his partner he loves the shape of you, but what about when her shape changes? Or Miley Cyrus's current number one 
hit, if you're into the charts, uh, with the refrain, I can love me better than you can, which is all about self-love. Perhaps that's the answer. Um, or perhaps more seriously, how many families have been torn apart in the name of love when mum or dad decides to have an affair? We all want love, but our world seems pretty unsure over what this is meant to look like. Which brings us to the apostle John. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He was there in the upper room when Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. And after Jesus' ascension, it seems like John um, traveled around planting local churches and supporting them, um, traveling extensively. And this letter, John's second epistle, seems to be written to one of those churches. Now, that might come as a bit of a surprise because verse 1 tells us the letter is written to the lady chosen by God. But there's a few reasons why most commentators agree this is probably written to a church and the lady is a way of referring to the church. I'll just give you four quick reasons. Um, firstly, the, the second person pronouns, if you're into your grammar, your, are often plural in the letter. For example, verse 6, which strongly suggests that John is addressing more than one person. It's also pretty unlikely, if you look at verse 5, that John would have written to a single person and instructed her to love one another. It's an odd thing to say to a single person, um, probably a group. Um, the end of the letter, verse 13, if you look down to that, John writes, the children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. Now again, it is possible that John is talking about the converted nieces and nephews of the subject of the letter, but it seems more likely that John is writing about two churches, a sister church, and one church is sending greetings to another. And also finally, um, John has referred to churches as women in other writings. So very famously in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, um, John talks about um, the church as the bride uh, of Christ. So for those reasons, most commentators agree that John's probably writing to a church rather than a literal specific individual. Um, uh, and there's a huge amount here for us. Uh, he's essentially instructing the church on how to love well, what it means to love each other in the truth. And as we read through it, um, I hope that we'll see that there's lots here for us to consider today. We're going to look at three main points um, to, to take us through the letter. Firstly, John shows us that love means following the truth. Love means following the truth. Secondly, John is emphatic that we must remain in the truth. Remain in the truth. And thirdly and finally, watch out for those who have left the truth. Watch out. So, starting at the top then, love means following the truth. Everyone likes the idea of love, but as we've already seen, I think there's quite a lot of confusion over what that really means. What is true love? And that's a key topic um, for John in this letter. So have a look down at verse 1 with me, and we'll, we'll start to work through it. John writes, To the lady chosen by God, which is the church, and to her children, the people in the church, whom I love, John says, in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. So what's happening here? Well, John is saying that he loves this church family, but not only that, that all people who know the truth also love this church family as well. And then we get to verse 2, where John tells us why he loves this church family. Verse 2, because of the truth. 
which lives in us and will be with us forever. So do you see what John is saying here? He's saying that because of the truth, the eternal truth that is in him, he loves the church, uh, and uh, this church is loved by him and all true believers as well. Because the truth is the glue that holds church family together. John has this truth in him. He loves the church that he's writing to. And indeed, because all believers have the truth in them, we are bonded together in truth and in love. True love always has to be rooted in truth. The two can't be separated. Without truth, love is, at best, sentimental, isn't it? But true love, grounded in true truth, is the glue that holds a church family together. Perhaps you were struck by that promise in verse 2, that the truth will be in us and remain in us forever. It's a powerful image, isn't it? The idea that as a Christian, as believers, we have truth in us, which will be with us forever. And it's perhaps reminiscent of something Jesus says, interestingly, in John's gospel. Um, But in John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 17, for your notes, Jesus' words recorded by John are actually that the Spirit will live in us and will remain in us forever. Which, of course, makes complete sense, doesn't it? Because we're told that the Spirit of God is, of course, the Spirit of truth. It's all part of the same theme. Through the Spirit of God, which is in all true believers, we are shaped by gospel truth. The Spirit of God is at work molding true believers to be more like Christ's likeness. We are shaped by the truth, and it grows our love for each other and for God. It's just another way of describing, I suppose, the process of sanctification. I wonder if anyone in your family has ever um, been told, uh, oh no, we we don't do that in our family. So perhaps, uh, no, no, in our family, we don't eat with our mouth open, or no, no, in our family, we, uh, we don't stand on the tables. Gives you an insight into what it's like in a sober household. Um, well, what's it like in a Christian family? Well, in a Christian family, what do we do in our family? Well, the answer is we love each other because we are filled with the truth, which is a loving truth and is lived out in family. And very simply, um, things start to go wrong when people try and divorce love from truth. That's where you get into a mess, isn't it? Love without truth, we've said is reduced to empty sentimentality. It needs truth to be of value, which was, of course, supremely demonstrated by Jesus and the way he loved us. Because Jesus loved us not just in that shallow, sort of Ed Sheeran, shape of you, you look nice type of love. Jesus' love went deep into the core of who we are. He knew us truly, and yet despite knowing our sin, or you could say even knowing our sin, He loved us literally to death, giving his life for us on the cross. That is true love. But what does it look like for you and me on a daily basis? Well, there are many, many applications to this. It's a reminder that as a family of God, we should be marked by our love for each other, as well as, of course, our love for God. So when there is someone in need, it should burden us collectively to help them. When one rejoices, of course, we all rejoice because we are a family and we love one another. When one weeps, we all weep 
with them. And that will, of course, involve sacrifices. It will take our time. We can't love someone without giving them time. So perhaps um, if at the start of the month we know that our diary is already chock-a-block and there's no room, is that leaving us enough bandwidth, enough capacity to love our church family, our brothers and sisters, well? But actually the main application that John draws out is a slightly different one. Have a look back down at verse 5. John writes in verse 5, And now, dear lady, the church, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. So what does it look like to love one another? Well, John says it certainly shouldn't be anything less than obeying Jesus's commands, which might be a little bit of a surprise. Obeying commands isn't what we normally think of when it comes to love. It certainly didn't feature as one of the five points in Dr. Gary Chapman's book. But of course, it makes total sense if you think about it, because all of Christ's commands, which we're being told to live out, are perfect. There is no more loving or no more beautiful a way to live than in perfect obedience to what Jesus has commanded. Loving each other will mean living the way Christ has instructed us to live. And of course, ultimately, that is how we will live in the new creation uh, in heaven. We will all have, um, our sin will be totally removed and we will live in perfect obedience to Christ following all of his commands. And there will be no greater expression of love amongst the people of God and to God himself when we are all perfectly loving each other, fulfilling um, the truth. Now, the idea of love involving rules, as we said, isn't very popular at the moment. That's not what our society would define love as. Our society much prefers the idea that love is free and spontaneous. But I would suggest, look at where that ends up. Is that really the best environment to raise a family in? Is it really the best way to care for the elderly and the vulnerable? Jesus has told us, through his commands, what the best way to live is and the best way to love is. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it, that we can express our love for each other by obeying Jesus' good command. It's yet another reason to work hard, I think, at putting sin to death in our own lives. Yes, out of love and respect for God, but also out of love for our church family. Love means following the truth. And then John's second point flows naturally on from there. Love means uh, following the truth and remaining in the truth. Remaining in the truth. Because John knows that following rules isn't very glamorous. It's actually not just modern um, 21st century types who want to break free from constraints. It's been part of human nature since the very beginning. Of course it has. Think of Adam and Eve given one rule um, which, of course, they instinctively wanted to break. And John knows this, which is why he very quickly urges his readers to remain in the truth. Have a look down at verse 9. In verse 9, the Apostle John writes, Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. John says, Do not run ahead. 
Don't do it. Continue in the teaching of Christ, which once again is the total opposite, really, of contemporary thinking. Because our society loves running ahead. But it's what we do all the time. We're constantly looking for the new, for the exciting, for the cutting edge. Influencers bring us new ideas daily. Fashions change, certainly faster than I can keep up with. When's the last time you ever saw an advert which proudly announced that a product was totally unchanged from last year? It never happened. The product could have been perfect last year. But uh, that's just not how our society functions. We run ahead. We're always looking after the new thing, uh, the new lawnmower, the new hoover, the new toothbrush, whatever it might be. Our society loves to run ahead and update and change and develop. And it adopts the same mentality when it comes to spiritual things. Most people around us assume that it would be foolish to believe the same things that people believed 2,000 years ago. We know so much more now, we're told. Things have moved on. Two uh, weeks ago, Bill Paston helpfully reminded us that today we live in a thoroughly pluralistic society where most people know someone uh, from another religion. And very often, of course, they come across as perfectly good, friendly, rational people. And that surely has been behind this great surge in spirituality and well-being that we've seen. But it hasn't been a surge towards one particular religion. Rather, it's been a surge towards something new, I would suggest. It's been choosing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, a little bit of spirituality from here, a little bit of wellness from there, and creating your own individual path. But here's the problem. If there is a truth, and if we know what it is, the most foolish thing you could possibly do would be to move away from it. Take a maths question, for example. Imagine your teacher, you go back to school tomorrow, and your teacher sets you a maths question. You work hard at it, you think about it, you figure it out, and you come up with your answer. And it's the correct answer. And you ask the teacher to check your work, and the teacher says, yes, that is the correct answer. Well, how foolish would it be to move away from your correct answer? And if we have the truth, as confirmed by Jesus through his death and resurrection on the cross, where he showed once and for all where truth lay, how foolish would it be to move away from the truth, the one and only truth, as Jesus has shown it. There are some things that it's okay to keep changing and developing. At the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with redeveloping, reimagining uh, the toothbrush, the hoover, the car, whatever it might be. But when it comes to truth, that's one thing we certainly don't want to reimagine. Or to put it more accurately, it's one thing we can't reimagine because there is only one truth. And I wonder, where might this be a challenge for you? Do we still delight in going back to the core truths of, uh, of the cross? Do we still read the Gospels and enjoy and um, sink into those eyewitness accounts of the Son of God giving his life for you? Of course, of course, it's a good thing to explore and enjoy and learn from the full breadth of Scripture, as long as in our hearts we're not trying to run ahead and find something new. When we enjoy, or I wonder, do we enjoy the innovative analyses of the minor prophets? Or 
do we rejoice in the way that those minor prophets point us to Christ? Are we looking for ways to run ahead, or are we remaining in the truth? I wonder how many of you would be pleased to be known as a plodder. I suspect not very many. It's not a very glamorous word, is it, to be known as a plodder? But that's actually the title, apparently, that William Carey chose for himself. William Carey, sometimes known as the father of modern missions, um, after his remarkable ministry in India, um, wanted to be known as a plodder. Certainly not because he was a slow worker or anything like that. In fact, he was a remarkable um, uh, worker and an incredible work ethic. He and his team translated the Bible into no less than eight languages in India um, through his ministry there. But he wanted to be known as a plodder because he refused to run ahead. He wanted to slowly and methodically work through um, uh, the opportunities, the ministry God had given him. He persevered, um, overcame extraordinary challenges, holding firm to the truth and plodding on, one foot in front of the other. Our age is obsessed with shooting stars and the cutting edge. But perhaps what we really need is a few more plodders who are willing to remain faithfully in the truth, making progress in the faith, but who are going to gain their full reward in heaven. Remain in the truth. And then finally, John ends with a warning, which brings us to our third and final point. Uh, John says, watch out for those who have left the truth. Um, Look back in your Bibles to verse 7 with me. He writes, I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out. So do you see what's got John so concerned? John says there are many deceivers, not just a few deceivers, but many which is quite shocking, really. Back in John's day, and I would suggest just as much in our day too, there are deceivers who are actively out to spread false testimony, false teaching about Jesus. And that's a big problem, certainly, for John, because remember, John is convinced that we are bonded together by love in the truth. So any false teaching about Jesus is going to threaten the very unity of the church, the glue that's meant to be holding us together. So what are these deceivers teaching? Well, firstly, let's clarify what John isn't um, talking about. So John isn't here um, talking about Christians who take different views on secondary matters. The Apostle Paul is very clear on this, isn't he? That we are, as Christians, to, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit with brothers and sisters on Secondary matters, matters where we might um, disagree, such as what to do with food sacrificed to idols or whether to celebrate feast days, some examples that the Apostle Paul brings out. And on these points, we are to be as flexible as possible, if you like, in order to maintain fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's not what's going on in this letter. In this uh, letter to John, the apostle is concerned about teachers who have moved on from core and essential truths of the Christian faith. 
And where that has happened, John tells this church that action is required. So in verse 7, we're told that these deceivers don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. So this is probably the docetist heresy, um, which basically states that Jesus only appeared to come in flesh, to, to become human. In reality, he was only divine, not human. This heresy gained a lot of traction amongst the Greeks, uh, who considered the body to be non-spiritual, and they just couldn't sort of accept um, that Jesus would genuinely have been human. Hence, this docetist heresy started to emerge. But of course, the big problem with it is that if you reject Jesus' bodily incarnation, that he really was human, then he can no longer be our substitute, and the whole gospel falls apart. Now, the docetist heresy isn't particularly prevalent in our context, um, but of course there are plenty of other equally ruinous heresies out there that Christians, or at least those who would call themselves Christians, are spreading. In 2011, Rob Bell made great waves in evangelical circles when he published his book Love Wins, which claims that a loving God uh, couldn't possibly send people to hell. He sold many millions of copies and even to this day travels around the world speaking at churches and conferences spreading this heresy. And then, of course, perhaps um, uh, even bigger now, there's the religion of tolerance. Tolerance is a big buzzword of the day, is it not? And sadly, there are countless preachers up and down this country and all over the West essentially preaching a gospel of tolerance, which is all very well, except it's very often at the expense of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. There's never a shortage of people willing to say what a waiting world's itching ears want to hear. And the consequences couldn't be more serious because these teachers, or false teachers as they really are, are depriving people of heaven. They're depriving people of knowing the God who loves them. And John says, watch out. But then he actually goes one step further as well. Have a look down with me to verse 9, and we'll see what he says next. John says, Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. So what is John saying here? Well, there have been some Christians who think this literally forbids Christians from welcoming false teachers into their homes. And that might be the case. However, many commentators actually conclude that John has a slightly different application in mind. Let me try and talk you through it. Because remember, John is writing this letter to a church. And back in John's day, churches were house churches, literally meeting in someone's front room. And very often, these little churches would have been ministered to by traveling preachers. They didn't have their own pastor, so there would be traveling preachers who would come and preach uh, in these house churches. And there's dozens of examples of this principle being enacted out in the New Testament, including in John's third epistle. Do feel free to flip over the page. Um, and there's a reference, if you look at 3 John, verse 7, to brothers and sisters who are their 
I quote, for the sake of the name, which is God. So these are brothers and sisters who have traveled into a different church for the sake of the name. Seems like they are the visiting preachers that John is referring to. So coming back to 2 John then, if we read verse 10 through that lens, it seems more likely that, what, that John is telling the church not to welcome these false teachers into their homes, which was the church, rather than a command for individuals not to welcome false teachers into their homes. And in fact, the word welcome uh, in this sense conveys a sense of, of fellowship. So if that's right, then what John is commanding here is, is really an echo of what Jesus says, the same principle. Jesus teaches, doesn't he, that anyone who persists in sin or heresy is not to be welcomed into the church. There comes a stage where you are to be excluded from the church, church discipline, essentially. They are to be treated as anti-Christ or against Christ. And clearly, if such a person um, were in that category, they could not have a teaching role in the church either. It perhaps reminds us of Jesus' very sobering words in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Some of you might have heard of a man called C.H. Dodd. Dodd was chair of divinity at Cambridge University a few decades ago and a well-published Christian commentator. But he decided, quite boldly, that he disagreed with the Apostle John on this point. He concluded that while it's understandable that John, in John's context, might have decided not to share fellowship with a false teacher who had erred, um, that we don't need to follow John's example or indeed instruction here. However, I suspect that at least part of Dodd's reluctance to accept the apostles' teaching might have come from the fact that Dodd himself was working on a new thesis. He'd come up with a new idea that perhaps the Greek word hilasterion, which has always been translated propitiation, might actually be translated as expiation. Why is this significant? Well, it's very significant because when applied to Jesus' work on the cross, it eradicates Jesus dying in our place. It's a new idea, a new theory to get published. But in pursuing something new, in running ahead, Dodd found himself denying Christ's bodily suffering in our place and endangered any Christians who might be listening to him. And in the age of YouTube preachers, I fear that there will be many more Dodds out there than perhaps ever before. And so I think the Apostle John would say to us, watch out. Who are you listening to? Are you sure they're bringing you the full and true gospel? Are they clear on the person of Jesus? Do they have a church family behind them holding them to account? Many of us, certainly myself included, have benefited hugely from access to online material. But we do have to be careful with that 
Because when we're learning from someone without seeing them in the context of a church family, it's much harder to know whether they are really living out those principles that they're talking about, or whether they are deceiving, and even a false teacher, perhaps. Fellowship and learning from a wide variety of Christians is, of course, a good thing. There are countless um, verses in the Bible, Hebrews 13 uh, amongst them, uh, which, which make this point. But we are not to fellowship with false teachers. The risks are just too great. So perhaps a good place to end this evening is with Paul's prayer to the Philippians. Uh, In Philippians 1, verse 9, Paul prays that they, or we, would abound in knowledge and discernment. We need the Spirit's guidance, don't we, in these things, as we seek to grow in our love for God and for our church family, as we seek to remain in the truth when the world would have us move on, and as we seek to avoid false teachers, especially now that we can hear them without even leaving the comfort of our homes. John writes that he has much more to say to the church, but alas, he wants to say it face to face rather than in this letter. But I think for us at least, he's probably given us plenty to think about already. Lord God, loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these inspired words um, that you had John write. Um, We thank you for the way our obedience to you can be a demonstration of our love for each other. Um, We thank you that you have given us the truth and confirmed it in Christ and planted it in our hearts. Heavenly Father, help us never to move on from it, but to live it out, to grow in our love of you and of each other. And Father, give us great wisdom and discernment to avoid false teachers. We know there are many who would move on from the wisdom and the truth of the gospel. Help us not to be deceived. Heavenly Father, we pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.